Let's pray. Father in heaven, we again come to you boldly to the throne of grace. Father, we are thankful for your many blessings that you have given to us as your church. And Father, we know that all of those blessings flow out of the Lord and through the Lord of the church. And we are so grateful and thankful anew this morning that he is here amongst us building his church, building us up individually in our faith and corporately as a body of believers, Father, who are here for no other reason than to bring you glory and to see your kingdom grow. Father, I pray this morning for the ministry of your word. I pray that for this moment, Lord, that you would bless me to preach your word, that you would give us ears to hear. And Father, I also pray for the ministry of your word throughout this church and all the different ministry endeavors that we do, Father, that everything that we do, we will do through your word that we would seek sustenance and guidance from Your Word and that You would bless us through Your Word. Father, we pray that Your Word would go out in this community, that it would be upon our lips this morning as we leave here, God, and we would not let it stay there, but we would send it out in this community to the people around us, Father, who are lost and dying around us. May it be said of us, Father, that we are pulling at their heels as they go headlong into an eternal fire. Father, let it, be because, not, let it not be because we were not there to warn them, to plead with them, to call upon them to repent and, return, and turn to You, to their Savior. Father, this, You have blessed us in so many ways, and we pray for people in our congregation who are suffering physically. And Father, we lift, continue to lift up Tracy and pray that You'd bless her, strengthen her, God, what a great joy it is to see what you are doing through her in this suffering. Father, it strengthens all of our faith as we see one of your children go through suffering. And I pray that we would be there to, to encourage her, to strengthen her, and that you would use us in that ministry to her. We pray for God that this treatment that she is in would be effective. Father, we pray for Mitch as well, Lord, who is coming to the end of his, and we are so thankful again this morning and how you've blessed him. We look forward to the day when he will be back here with us. And we just thank you anew this morning for that. And Father, so many others this morning who are suffering uh, physically, but also God spiritually, I pray for marriages, Father, who are struggling. I pray that you would bless them. You would bless the husbands to be leaders of, in their families. Father, that you would bless wives to be lovely, lovingly submissive to their husbands. And Father, that parents would be striving to raise their children in your word. Bless us with the grace to do all those things, Father. Bless our families, that they would be strong, and that your word would go out from this house, and that each one of our homes, God, would also be places of the word. That your word would go forth in our homes and rule our homes. Give us the grace to be that type of church, Father. And now, God, I pray that you would bless the preaching of your word for your glory and the good of your people. In Christ's name, amen. It is good to see all of you this morning. I am Pastor Steve. Uh, for some of you who may be visiting, and it is our common practice here to preach through books of the Bible expositionally, verse by verse. And we just recently finished the book of 1 John, which took us about six months to go through, and it was a a great joy and a blessing for me to preach through it as, as for the other brothers as well. And I hope it was a blessing for you as well to be instructed from that rich book. And we took a couple of weeks to preach on a mission statement of the church. And I would encourage you, if you did not hear those, to get those tapes. Uh, there were excellent sermons by Pastor Nick who kind of gives us a broad uh, mission of what we are about as a church. And so really those two sermons are really a good segue and a setup for what we are going to begin today. We're going to begin going through the book of 1 Corinthians. So I would encourage you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 
We're going to start there just for a moment, and then we'll be going back to Acts. (laughs) And it just so happens in the providence of God that He has had our Scripture reading this morning to be the very one we will be looking at. I love it when the Holy Spirit does that. No planning on our part. He just showed up (laughs) and made us read the very Scriptures we'll be looking at this morning. And so I want to start uh, just with verse 1. I'm not going to go through... Uh, any of the verses specifically in 1 Corinthians this morning. What this, the title of the sermon, let me give that in the keywords, is 1 Corinthians and Introduction. So we're going to be looking at an overview, kind of the lay of the land this morning, of the whole book, uh, to see what's going on. What's, what's, what was this city in Corinth? Uh, who was involved in writing this book? And who were the people he were writing to in particular? And our keywords this morning will be Paul, Corinth, and Church. So 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1 says, Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth. And so here we see something right out of the gate. We see who this, who this person is who's writing this book. It's the apostle Paul. And it's pretty much unanimous agreement amongst uh, scholars and theologians that this book was written by the Apostle Paul as he identifies himself in verse 1 there. And so he was, uh, as we, he did wrote, write most of the New Testament, most of the letters to the churches were written by Paul himself. Uh, he was known as the Apostle to the Gentiles. And so here he is fulfilling his office and his call to go to this Gentile city in Corinth. And he is beginning to, uh, he has planted this church and now he is writing to it. And we'll get to that in a moment. But we see here that Paul the Apostle uh, has written this letter to this church, to the church of God in Corinth. I wanted to highlight that. I'll bring that out again next week. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3 next week, uh, in a, specifically in those, those three verses. But uh, this was the church of God in Corinth. Paul had gone to this city and planted a church, the church of God, not just a church here on this corner or a church here on that corner or a church on this, based on this denominational preference or this. This was the church of God. Uh, this was God's church uh, who had begun, who had Paul had started here in church. So uh, just flip back now to Acts chapter 18, and we're going to spend uh, probably a few moments there. If you want to hold your finger there in 1 Corinthians, we'll be going back and then start go through the whole book kind of in a bird's-eye view fashion. I'm not going to really read the whole uh, text again. We're going to be focusing primarily on the first 18 verses here. As Jeff just read them to us, we're going to just kind of highlight some points that we can get out of this that will kind of describe and inform us about what this, who this church was, what, it, what kind of people were in it, what was going on, what, and then that will inform us about why Paul wrote this letter uh, later. Just to kind of set the context here, Paul is in growing towards the end of his second missionary journey. Uh, it started back in uh, chapter 15, verse uh, 36. You will see where Paul, where it says that in some day, and after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, "Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are." And so, Paul and Barnabas had come out of the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 after their first missionary journey, and there was a dispute amongst uh, from some Jews were causing some of the Gentiles, some of the Greeks, to, uh, to stumble in their faith. And so they had a council there in Jerusalem about this, and they, all, and they wrote a letter about that for all the apostles to carry out to the Gentile churches of what their uh, agreement was out of that. And so really that's what really precipitated Paul's second missionary journey. Not only did he want to go and strengthen those churches, and even as we'll see today, visit new places, uh, he was taking that decree that had come out of the Jerusalem Council um, to these other churches. And so Paul sets out, and he goes through several places. He goes through uh, uh, Macedonia. Uh, he goes through uh, Philippi, and then he goes to Thessalonica, Berea. Then he ends up in Athens, and we see that great sermon that Paul preached uh, to the Oropagus, where Paul, as he's walking in the city of Athens, he sees all these uh, statues to different gods, and then he sees one uh, to the unknown God, and he uses that as a segue, as a as a way to bring the gospel to them, to this to the God he represented, the the one true God. And so, Paul leaving from there, he he sets foot over which Athens um, is really right close to where Corinth is, 
And so we see here uh, that Paul is setting, setting sail out of Athens, or, or really not setting sail, but just going next, uh, really next door, about 50 miles away to, uh, to the city of Corinth. If you have, I'm not going to, you don't have to do it right now, but if you have time, look in the back of your Bibles. You probably have a map. If you have a regular Bible, you have some maps in the back of your Bible, and one of them is probably entitled Paul's Missionary Journeys. It might even specifically be for the second missionary journey. But if you look at that, you will see that Corinth is located in the southern, uh, uh, towards the southern end of Greece, the nation of Greece. It's really on an isthmus of land, which you know what an isthmus is. It's like a little land bridge that connects two major uh, portions of land. Uh, it connects the mainland of Greece to the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Uh, and there's this little narrow strip of land there that you will see uh, that connects those two major land uh, uh, parts of land in Greece. And so uh, Corinth is located right there in that little narrow strip of land. It's about three and three and a half miles wide. There's uh, two port, two major bodies of water on either side. Um, about two miles north was the, from Corinth was the city of Lycaeum. It was on the Corinthian Gulf. About seven miles to the east of Corinth was the city of Centria, which we read about this morning. Uh, it's on the Saronic Gulf. And because Corinth was on this land bridge between central Greece and Peloponnesia, and it was very nearby and close to these two port cities, Corinth was a very prosperous city. You know, you had uh, plenty of, uh, of naval traffic coming in there and, and merchant traffic coming in there, ships coming in on one gulf to this other port. And even in some instances, they would take uh, the goods off of one ship from one port and carry it across this land to the other port instead of sailing all the way around the southern end of the Peloponnesian Peninsula. Uh, it was dangerous to go down there, and it was very easy to take their goods off and carry it across this narrow strip of land. And they would invariably go right through Corinth. And so Corinth was very prosperous because of that, had uh, a, a, an enormous amount of wealth going through there. It was also a very diverse city. Uh, some accounts list the population of Corinth between around 175,000 to as many as 600,000 people. And it was people from all walks of life. It was... Uh, it was not a Jewish city, really. It was, uh, it was really a city that was made up of a hodgepodge of very different groups. There were Jews there. Uh, primarily, there were Jews there. There were Greeks there. There were Romans. There were sailors, obviously. Uh, there were slaves. And so there were a, a, a huge diversity of people that were in this city. Uh, but it was also a very, how should I say it, a very licentious city. Uh, it was really the Las Vegas of its time, I guess you could say. Um, it, because of all of these different types of people, and I guess because of all these sailors who are coming, if anybody's ever been in a, a sailing port, you can imagine what's going on in some of these places. And so that's what's going on in Corinth. Corinth even had a particular temple in there. It was called the Temple of Aphrodite. Aphrodite was one of the Greek god, goddesses that the Greeks believed in. And so they had this temple there to her, and it, had, it employed at any given time usually about a 1,000 prostitutes. Uh, and they were there to um, to service the people of the city in that way. And so we can see uh, that it was a very uh, licentious city. It was a, a city of immorality. In fact, Corinth had such a reputation for immorality that the Greeks actually coined the term uh, Corinthia Zestai. And what that really meant was to live a Corinthian life. And so if you were going to be living or in living anywhere in the world and and you were living in that lavish lifestyle and that immoral lifestyle, you were said to be living a Corinthian life. And so you can see that the, that the city itself did not have a very good name as far as, as being um, uh, a religious place or even a place of, of morality. It was very immoral. And so this is the city that Paul arrives in as he's coming, out of, coming from Athens. I want to read, just kind of highlight through some of these verses that we looked through in, in Acts 18, verses 1 through 18. Just kind of make a few points, and then we'll go back to 1 Corinthians. It says in 18.1, After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth, and he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And so the first thing I want to point out here is we already we see God sovereignly working. We see God preparing his way for this church to be established. <clears throat> Here's Paul 
He, no, no one knows he's coming. He comes through. He leaves Athens. He comes to, to Corinth uh, for the purpose of wanting to establish, to, uh, to proclaim the gospel to this city. And then God has already began to prepare people there. He's brought people there to join in with Paul. And not only join in with him uh, as, a, as a believer, but even in the same trade. We see Priscilla and Aquila, who is really the first people that Paul latched onto as being part of planting this church. And so God had sovereignly decreed that, uh, that Claudius would expel Jews from Italy. And this was what, why uh, Priscilla and Aquila had left there and came to Corinth. And they just so happened to be tent makers too. And so God has began to uh, already go out front. And that's, that's encouraging to us as well as we are doing the ministry, as we're doing uh, the gospel ministry and wherever we're doing it, God's already there. He's already, he's already working. He's already setting uh, the stage, so to speak, for us to walk in there and do the work of the ministry. And so Paul had al- or God had already set the stage here for Paul to do the work of the ministry by bringing like-minded people in there to join in with him. And in verse 4 and 5 he says, And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. If you read anything about Paul, that was the way he worked. He, when he would go into a city, the first place he would go to would be the Jewish synagogue because the word of God would go first to the Jews. And so he's, he's, he's sitting here, it says, re, he's in their synagogue, he's in their place, reasoning with them from the scriptures. He's telling them about Christ from the scriptures. And then what happens? Verse 6, And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. And so he gets basically the same reaction that, that the other apostles and he's got in some of the other places. Uh, the Jews reject uh, the message of Christ. And so Paul uh, in basically, in, in essence, shakes the dust off of his feet and moves on. Um, he's kind of, uh, while saying, Your blood be on your own heads, he's, he's, re- he's remembering the the admonition of Ezekiel about the watchman being there to, to warn the people of coming judgment. And he says, if you warn them, uh, if you do not warn them and the judgment comes, they will still pay for their sins, but their blood will be on your hands because you did not warn them. But he said, if you do warn them and they still turn back from it, they will, the blood will be on their hands, on their heads. And so that's what Paul was quoting to them. And so they would have very uh, readily recognized what he was saying. And so he's turning away from them. And really, this is an or, unorganized um, opposition that's, uh, that's rised up. And if you look down at verse 12, and, verse 12 through 17, I just want to skip around a little bit. We see a more organized um, opposition happening. It says, But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names in your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge of these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. And so you see, this is really a monumental thing that happened here. This is a more organized uprising from the Jews to try to bring Paul uh, to accuse him before the Roman authorities uh, to, in order to squelch this um, uh, Paul's message. And so what happens in essence is Gallio has said, no, I will not receive this, uh, this opposition. In fact, I'm even going to pronounce judgment that in essence the Christian message is the same thing as the Jewish message because in the Roman Empire you had to have, you, had, you couldn't just go up and, and, and preach anything you wanted to. You had to be approved by the state in order to do it. Jews had already been approved uh, to practice their religion in the Roman Empire. And so really, in essence here, Gallio is saying, you can now practice this Christian religion. You can proclaim this message. So this is monumental. This is huge. Because uh, they would always uh, have opposition from the Jews, but there would be not as much opposition from the state here. And so, in essence, Paul uh, really has things set up in in a favorable manner for him by this by this decree that Gallio has put forth. And so he says there in verse 17, this is how, how did they react to that? They didn't get their, uh, the judgment they were looking for. And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. 
But Gallio paid no attention to any of this. And so uh, their, 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 their way of dealing with this was to take the leader of the, of the synagogue who had been replaced earlier by Crispus, who had, who had believed in the message that Paul had, had been proclaiming along with his whole household. And so the Jews replaced him and put Sosthenes in there. So they began to beat him because they didn't get the result. But one thing we don't see in here, but we saw back in 1 Corinthians 1, which I didn't read all the way, but one of the things Paul says, Paul called by the will of God, I did read it, to be an apostle in Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. And so you see the very guy that the Jews tried to beat because, um, because they didn't get the decree that they wanted also believed at some later date in Paul's message. And Paul is writing back to them Giving him this, giving them their, his name to encourage them to say, uh, Sosthenes is still with me, and he is he is a leader in the Corinthian church. And so, uh, but but don't don't overlook this monumental decision here by Gallio that really paved the way for Paul to begin to do the work of the ministry here in this city of Corinth. And so, what was the fruit? What did Paul accomplish here? Well, as I just mentioned, Crispus uh, in verse eight uh, believed with his whole household. Uh, but it also says, and many of the Corinthians here, hearing believed and were baptized. And so we see here that God already has sovereignly beginning to work. He, he brought uh, Priscilla and Aquila into this city um, um, by suspicious circumstances, but we know we call that the providence of God. He had brought these people in there. He had set up people around Paul. He, he, brought, he provided Crispus, who was who was the leader of the synagogue, and, and he would have been no doubt a very influential person and a, probably a wealthy person. And so God is setting the stage here for this great work that Paul is about to do. And look at one of the things I want to draw your attention before we go back to 1 Corinthians is um, uh, after it, verse 8 when it says, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And he says, many Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. But notice one of the things that uh, Paul had a vision from God and what he said. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. And so do you see what, do you see what he's saying there? I mean, Paul was probably kind of a little nervous. I mean, he hadn't got, he hadn't, he hadn't at this point gotten that decree from Gallio, and so he didn't know how that was going. And so, naturally, with all this up, uh, unorganized opposition from the Jews, I mean, Paul's used to that, nonetheless. But it was probably a very uh, nerve-wracking thing for him. And so, God tells him, in essence, "I have many people in this city." What did he mean by that? People who were already believers? No, not yet. But by the decree, the sovereign decree of God's electing grace, he had already set apart people that he was going to call to himself through the ministry of the Word. Because if, it, if we were fatalists like some people uh, want to accuse us of being when we believe that God sovereignly chooses those for salvation, uh, then Paul would have said, great, you got people in this city. I'm out of here. I'm going to go on down the road to the next place and begin preaching and, and, and teaching. But no, he said, Paul took great comfort from that. And that's what I want us to see this morning is that God has his people all around us. He has his people right here in this community. But what does it take for us to, what does he use in order to bring them to salvation? He uses his people by proclaiming the message of the gospel uh, to them. And so that's what Paul and in, in his, in his, in his friends set out to do based on the comfort he took from God's admonition that he would not allow anybody to harm him. And there again, you see God's sovereign hand even over the, the ruler there of, the, of, the, of, the, of Achaia, over Gallio. God was sovereignly working in that, preparing the stage for Paul to do a ministry to, to, uh, to plant this church. And so that's what's going on here. Paul has begun this ministry in this city, a very licentious, immoral city uh, with uh, numerous uh, people who worship many different gods. Um, various immoral uh, things happening. And so Paul is at work in this city for 18 months. And so let's flip back to 1 Corinthians. As far as the date of this book, it's assumed that Paul 
uh, first arrived in Corinth in the autumn of, of the year 50 A.D. And um, according, as I just read in Acts 18, 11, he stayed there 18 months. And so Paul probably would have left Corinth probably in the spring of 52. And really that's when he, he began his third missionary journey uh, right after this because after he left Corinth, he, he very shortly found his way back to Antioch, which, is where, which was Paul's home church. And so after he was there for a while, he went out again on his third missionary journey. And so finally Paul makes his way uh, very shortly after he began the third missionary journey to the city of Ephesus. And it says there that he spent two to three years in Ephesus. It was probably from, from the city of Ephesus, it's believed, that Paul wrote uh, this letter to the Corinthians. And it was very close, as I mentioned earlier. It was about 50 miles away. So there was very easy to get word back and forth about each other. And so it is from here that he wrote 1 Corinthians, probably in the year 54, 55 A.D. is when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians. Now, why did he do this? Why did he write this book? And that's what we're going to be looking at. Uh, the rest of this morning. And really, uh, this is really not a traditional type sermon. This is probably going to be more like a lecture, but I do want to do want to encourage you from some of the points that we'll be looking at, some of the things you can be anticipating as we begin to go through this book, because there's a lot of things in this book that will no doubt instruct us and encourage us. So why did he write this book? Uh, we're back in 1 Corinthians, and so it says, in this, in this short couple of years since Paul had left Corinth, the church, instead of overcoming the world, instead of overcoming the culture of the, of, the, of the city of Corinth itself and those around them, instead of overcoming that, the church had begun to become overcome by the world. A major division was beginning to set in. If you look at verse 11, um, and we're going to be looking at the first, um, of course, the first nine verses first. And I just want to make one point about that is that one of the things you always see in Paul's ministry especially, and in all the apostles, is before they begin to instruct, they encourage. They remind you of who you are. And that's what Paul, in essence, does in the first nine chapters. He starts out in verse 3 talking about uh, to, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their, their, their Lord and ours, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. And then he goes on, the, he talks about how he's been praying for them and giving thanks, give thanks for them because uh, every way that they were enriched in him, all speech and all knowledge. So, so Paul is telling them, in essence, who they are. He's reminding them that they're saints, that they're called by God. But then he goes quickly in to these issues that he's dealing with. He says in verse 11, For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. And so we see, really, 1 Corinthians is divided into two major sections. The first six chapters uh, that, that we'll, see, we'll go through is really Paul dealing with this report that came from Chloe, Chloe and her people. And so no doubt this, this lady, Chloe, was a very uh, faithful person in this church who loved this church, and she'd probably been there from the very beginning, and so she's, she's seen... Uh, the, the excitement that happened as, as they had first come to faith in Christ, as Paul was still there ministering for 18 months. Uh, but since he had been gone, th uh, some serious things had been going wrong. Things had been happening. And so instead of just uh, being an, an absent-minded bystander and saying, well, I, I can't do anything about this, she, she, took, she took action because she wanted, she loved her church. She loved the people of her church. And so she wanted to go to the person who could most help. And so she sends this report. Uh, to, to the Apostle Paul over in Ephesus. And so she's telling him really the, of several things that's going on. And the first thing we see here is there is quarreling among you. And what I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And Paul, so Paul immediately uh, dives into that and asks a question, is Christ divided? So they're quarreling over their leaders. They've had different people come through, different teachings, no doubt, Either Peter was, it's not known whether Peter was actually there, but I mean, they could have been heard some teachings of Peter or some of the writings of Peter. And so or they knew of Peter, but Apollos was there. Paul was there. And so they're beginning to divide themselves in little cliques of who they liked and who they didn't like. And so it caused great division in here, in, in the church. And as we continue to go through it, Paul is dealing with that, telling them, you know, that we're just workmen. We're the ones who are watering. It is Christ who is God who brings the increase. 
we're just we're just the vessels that he uses uh, to in order to proclaim uh, to you the truth. And so another thing we see that Paul begins to deal with here early on is that worldly wisdom has crept into this church. Like I said earlier, instead of overcoming the world, instead of overcoming the culture it was in, in this licentious, immoral city that it was a part of, instead of it overcoming, uh, the church overcoming that, the, the culture itself, the city had begun to increase, to creep itself in to the practices of the church. And so you begin to see immorality happening and wisdom, wisdom from, um, from the world happening. And so you see that, that he goes through really and just starts from the very beginning again. He says, uh, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. It's a simple message we live off of, right? It's a very simple message. It's the message of the cross. It's the message of a, of a Savior who died that we might not have to experience the judgment of God. And Paul is reminding them of that because they had began to discard that for this worldly wisdom that they were, they were leaning on. And then we see as he goes through, he continues to talk about various ways that the, the church is being divided over this and the ministry of the apostles and what they're called to do. And then he deals in chapter 5 with this case of sexual immorality within the Corinthian church. And actually, in, real, in essence, this letter that he wrote here is not really the first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Because if you look at verse 9 of chapter 5, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning that the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed. And so Paul had wrote this earlier letter to them uh, about sexual immorality. And so they confused that and thought, well, we're, that he's just talking about that as long as we stay away from these people out here, these pagan people who are going to this temple of Aphrodite and to these prostitutes, as long as we stay away from them, we're okay. But there's a guy right in their church who's having an affair with his father's wife, which would have been his stepmother. And so Paul is calling them on that and saying, how can you allow this to happen? I, have already, I am not even there, but I have already passed judgment on this, that this is wrong. And so he's chiding them and bringing them to realization that you are allowing this immorality to happen right underneath your own house, underneath your own roof, and he's calling them out on that. And so pretty strong language he's calling them out on that. For this brother, he's telling them to put them out, put them out of the church. Chapter 6, he goes into talking about lawsuits. Apparently, by the world creeping into the church, uh, they had begun to act like the world by suing each other for who knows what. You know, that's, and really, that's the, that's the age we live in, right? This is a, an age of lawsuit after lawsuit. I, mean, I just bought a house and I had to sign a papers, bunch of papers that thick. Why? Because people sue each other <laughs> over crazy things. And, and we have to cover ourselves by signing this and signing that. And so that's, the, that's really the world that it's always been. And so, um, and so Paul here is saying... Why are you going to court against one another? Why are you bringing this in front of the secular judge? Is there no one amongst you who has the wisdom to judge these matters? And he says, you are going to judge angels one day. You are going to sit in judgment on angels one day. Can you not judge these simple matters that go before the court? Why not rather, and he even goes to the point and says, why not rather be defrauded? Is it all about you? Is it all about having to demand your rights? And Paul is saying, Look out for your witness. You are here as lights in this city. I plant, God planted this church through my efforts, through Paul's efforts, to be a light in this city, to proclaim that gospel so that God would draw His people out of darkness and into the light. And so he's saying, how are they going to be drawn out like that when you look just like the rest of the ones around you? He's saying the world goes to court against each other because they must demand their rights. They're self-focused. But that is not the way of the Christian. And so it says, why are you doing that? Stop doing that. And then in the, the second part of chapter 16, he again t goes into talking about sexual immorality and sexual sin. That was, as it is living in our day, living in this city was very, very difficult, very tempting, uh, and very hard to remove yourselves from this temptation of this sin. And so no doubt that was a struggle for them. And so Paul, again, is instructing them to flee from sexual immorality and be careful of this. 
And so that's what we see going on really in the first part of this cha- first part of this letter, the first six chapters where he's dealing with this report who had come in from Chloe and some of her people of some of the struggles that this church was having. Then as we begin chapter 7 and really to the end of the book is the second major six- section where Paul is addressing issues that the congregation itself had written to him about to ask his uh, his uh, to give his opinion and his idea of what they were, of what the true biblical answer was, because and you'll you'll notice that as we as we start going through from chapter seven all the way to the end, he says, "Now concerning the matters about which you wrote," and then he goes on to say, "It is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman," and he goes really all the way to chapter seven. There was a question about uh, issues of of marriage, about whether or not a person should get married or stay single whether a person has the gift of singleness or whether he should get married. Paul addresses that. There are issues here where Paul is uh, having to talk about divorce. Uh, when is it right to, is it right to get divorced? Uh, is, there, is there times when it is uh, biblically okay to get a divorce or pursue a divorce? And whether or not someone should get remarried after a divorce. Paul goes into these things here in chapter 7 uh, in, uh, in response to one of their questions about marriage. They were confused and needed instruction. And then chapter 8, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but loves builds up. If anyone, see, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Paul, again, is setting the stage to talk about this issue that they were dealing with. They were in this uh, pagan city, and there were in the church itself in Corinth, there were Jews and Gentiles. Uh, almost as almost as the Roman Church was, if you remember the issue happened almost identically in Rome, where they were offering these these uh, these uh, animals to these false gods in these uh, in these other pagan temples that they had going on there, and so th- there was a struggle there about whether that meat was okay to eat. Some people said, "Well, it's not. There, I know there's no other god than the one true God, and so they're really just wasting their time." Uh, they're up there bowing down to nobody. And so I know that does it doesn't bother me. And so I'm going to go up there and buy some discounted steaks, you know, some discounted pork chops because they couldn't sell it like they would the regular meat that wasn't sacrificed. And so I'm going to get me a good deal. I'm going to use the wisdom God's given me to be a good steward. And I'm going to go buy me some pork chops that were sacrificed uh, at the evening sacrifice last night. And so some of the people in the church were struggling with that because their conscience was saying, these God, this, this was used in a defiling way, in a way that was contrary to the one true God. And so how could you eat that? And so Paul is dealing with that, and he, go, and he goes through a very lengthy portion, of really all the way through 8, 9, and 10, talking about this issue of how we're supposed to relate to one another in these struggles of conscience. Uh, we've used the word Christian liberty here as we, as we go through these verses that I think we can get some understanding about what our liberty is in Christ. But I also, I like to, when I, when I use the term Christian liberty, I also want to caveat that and immediately attach that to the word Christian responsibility. You know, sometimes we're very open and ready to say, I have the liberty to do this, I have the liberty to do that. And that, no doubt, was happening here. People were just saying, hey, it's no big deal. I can go eat these pork chops if I want. I don't care if you have a problem with it, brother, or not. I'm going to do it. And Paul is saying, no, why are you doing that? Love your brother. That is the first and foremost thing you should be focusing on, your love for one another. Who cares whether you eat this meat or not? Can you not go without it if it's going to cause somebody else to stumble? And so Paul here is going into very great detail of how we relate to one another in the midst of all of our progressive sanctification. Each one of us are on different planes of sanctification on different levels of maturity. And we're supposed to be working together in the context of the church and working in His kingdom and so Paul here, and it happened also in Rome, they were having a very similar disagreement over what food they ate. He's saying, what is the main thing? The main thing is to love. That's the first and foremost thing you should be seeking to do. Love one another in the midst of this. Yes, it's okay to eat this animal. It's okay to eat these pork chops. But if it's going to cause your brother to stumble, you know, why do it? And so Paul goes through that all the way through chapter 10. Uh, to talk about this issue. Then in chapter 11, uh, really all chapters 11 through 14, deals with divisions in worship or, or problems they were having within the worship. We see some issues that had to do with men and women. 
particularly the first part of chapter 11 talks about head coverings and about uh, whether or not a woman should be wearing a head covering in the worship service during this time and in this culture. And so we'll look at that and see uh, how that applies to us today. And then at the end of chapter 11, we see uh, the teaching on the Lord's Supper. And this is really one of the ver- passages we read when we do communion. Is right here in 1 Corinthians 11 when Paul is talking about uh, the Lord's table. And, and, and he was dealing with uh, the division here was, was the misuse and the misapplication of the Lord's table. Uh, instead of coming together uh, as brothers and sisters in love, which is really one of the main focuses of Paul's letter here is love, uh, they were not doing that. They were, again, seeking their own self-satisfaction. And there was, um, there was actually some people who had died in this context because of their misuse of the Lord's table and really misuse of the love feast. And we'll look at that to see what is the love feast and how does that apply today. And so we'll be focusing on that. And then, and then really in uh, chapters 12 through 14, this is probably one of the most studied sections of Scripture today <laughs> among a lot of people as we start to look at these issues of spiritual gifts and what is what gifts are still around today and what gifts are not. He talks about uh, the gifts of tongues and prophecy and healings and things like that. And, and much of the church, evangelical church today, is divided over this issue of, pro- of tongues, speaking in tongues and spiritual gifts. And so Paul goes into great detail to outline uh, what it is, how this is supposed to function within the context of the church. But one of the great things about it is that right in the midst of that, what does, he, what does he teach us in chapter 13? Probably one of the greatest definitions of love you'll find in the Bible. And so right in the midst of all of this disagreement, especially over, over this uh, self-gratification of, of everybody wanting to speak in tongues and, and there was confusion in the worship service, Paul is saying, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prof- prophetic powers and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I fin- have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. And so he goes on through that to define what love is and, and, and the importance of it. One of the greatest chapters in the Bible I, I highly encourage you to be meditating on this, on this chapter constantly because it shapes your thinking as you begin not only in your marriages but also in your, in your, in your parenting, in your relationship with your children, in your relationship within the church itself and people around you. It shapes your thinking because it takes the focus off of you and puts it on others, which is what we're called to be. And he said, if you're the greatest person on the planet, if you can do all these great things, but love is not characteristic of you, you are nothing. You are wasting your time. And so that's one of the things that we will be greatly encouraged and instructed on when we get to this part. And then we see in chapter 15, there was no doubt some confusion over the resurrection. He says, Now I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. And He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And so here again, Paul is, what is, what is the central message of Paul's ministry? It's the gospel. It's the resurrection of Christ. In another place he says, if Christ, if Christ be not raised, we are of all people the, the most pitiable people on earth. We are wasting our times if Christ is not raised. If Christ is not raised, we might as well go join the world in all of its uh, frivolous pursuits and all of its fun and activity and sin. We might as well be full-blown into it if Christ is not raised because if He is not, we are wasting our time because our efforts will not accomplish anything in the sight of God. It is only through the risen Savior that we are justified and stand before Him not condemned and forgiven this morning. And so again, Paul goes through this in this chapter, one of the greatest chapters in the, in the New Testament, talking about the resurrection of the Christ, of Christ Himself. And he also ties that into our future resurrection. There's some great eschatology in this chapter when he talks about how we are going to be risen one day. We are all suffering in these bodies. We are all, some of us are struggling physically. We have disease. All of us are ultimately going to die. Our bodies are going to waste away. 
But we know one day that we will receive a new body, a body that does not die, does not feel pain, does not age. And so he's teaching us these things because of Christ's resurrection, because he was glorified, and because he, he, he is now in heaven with a glorified body, we are yet... We, we are waiting for that to happen with us as well. And that is a, that'll be a glorious day. You know, even if you're not dealing with some physical ailment right now, just the weight of your own sin, the impact of having to fight your own, much less everybody else's, that's bad enough, right? Dealing with everybody else's sin around you. Come on, amen? That's pretty bad, right? But the weight of your own sin that you have to wake up to every morning and feel, The weight of that, the nastiness of that. If we're like, if if we're walking with God, we should be hating it. We should be hating it more and more every day. But the glorious truth here in this chapter, Paul is telling us: one day you will no longer face that. One day you will receive a body that cannot sin. I mean, can you fathom that? I can't. I cannot fathom the fact that one day I will not sin. But it's true. And he's teaching us that here, that we will receive that body one day. And, that, that is, and really, that is the only way we can inhabit heaven. We cannot inhabit heaven without that. We have this earthly suit here now that you see that you all have. It's wasting away. It's only temporary. We will receive a permanent heavenly suit one day that we will be in that forever. I don't know about y'all, but that excites me. And then in verse 16, we see Paul dealing with a confusion over the collection for the saints. He gives them some directions on how that should take place. And he gives some further details on Apollos and his ministry in the church um, there towards, all the way towards the end of chapter 16. And so you see there is a, there is a lot of things we're going to be looking at and being challenged with as we go through this book. And it's, a, and it's, and it's going to be really good because... We, we need to look at this as if, as if Paul is writing this to us, Ephesus Church in Rincon, Georgia. And he is. This is inspired scripture. And, he, and so every one of these issues that I highlighted that, that Paul is going to be dealing with, we struggle with. We have struggled with, we are struggling with right now, or we will struggle with them one day. And so we need instruction. And so this, these people who were in this church were being impacted by their culture. Their culture was squeezing in on them. And they were being molded. They were being tempted to fall in line with their culture. And that's us. We're there too, right? Our culture is all around us in America. All these things, all these niceties that are around us, they're, they're beckoning us. As soon as we wake our eyes in the morning, they're calling to us, come, come take part in this. Come do that. You'll love this. Oh, don't worry about it. God will be okay with it. He understands. You're just a sinner. He understands that. And so, no, Paul is saying, no, it's not like that. You've been called to a greater purpose. And so the things that these people struggle with are the same things that we struggle with. This church was divided. It was struggling. Just 18 months or well, two or three years into its existence, it was struggling. And so it needed instruction. And so we, are, we need instruction as well. And we can be encouraged by that instruction as no doubt they were. And so I want to go back and just highlight just a few verses that... Um, that we'll be looking at that really, to me, I think will be great encouragement to us. And I've already spoken of some of them. Chapter 1, verse 18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, And I, when I come to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. That is the message of the gospel. That is all that we need to be about. All these other things that we do, they're fine, they're good, but if they do not help us to accomplish this, then they're a waste of our time. Everything that we do, as we were speaking about in, our, in the last two sermons about our, our, our mission statement, these things lead us to the gospel. Right? We, Ephesus, let me see if I can remember this. Ephesus Church is a family of faith that exists to worship God in joy. What's the next one? To love our neighbors, to see transformed lives, and to send and be sent for the spread of the gospel through Jesus Christ. Did I get it right? All right. 
Have y'all memorized it yet? Because in that, in that, I mean, this, I mean, listen, it's just something that, that we came up with. It's, it's nothing great, okay? But in it, it focuses on this issue that Paul is dealing with. The word of the cross is what we're here to do. The message of the cross. And the message of the cross will bring about transformed lives. It will help us to have joy, to worship God with joy. It will help us to love our neighbors because they need that message of the cross as we received it, right? And the message of the cross will also compel us to go to either send or be sent for the spread of the gospel. And so that is one of the things that we're going to be focusing on throughout this is the, is the gospel, the gospel. Chapter 10, verse 13. It's one of my favorite verses in this, in this book, in this uh, letter. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Now that should speak to everybody in this room right now. Because each one of us are struggling with something, whether it be a physical disease or a spiritual ailment. We are all struggling. And what is God telling us here? He's saying no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You're not dealing with anything right now that people all over the world for all time have not dealt with. There is nothing new under the sun. The, the, the situations that you're dealing with, the struggles that you're dealing with, People all around you are dealing with them at the same time, and people before you have already dealt with them. It is not common to man. But why, what is the main point here that Paul is giving us? And this, this, if you want to write a word by this verse, it's hope. It's what this verse is about. It's hope. God is faithful. I'm not, but He is. God is faithful. And He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may, might be able to endure it. You know what He's saying there? There is a purpose for everything that you're going through. He has a purpose and a plan, and He's going to bring it about, and He has a, a fruit that He's trying to create in you, and He knows exactly what He's doing with you. He knows how much you can take. And whenever you're saying, I can't go another day, He said, yes, you can, and you can go another one, and I'm going to give you the ability to do another one. I'm going to give you the grace to do it again. And He's saying, you're in My hands. Have hope. You're struggling, I know, but you're in my hands and I know exactly what I'm doing. I'm the silversmith that has you over the fire and I know exactly how long I need to keep you in that fire to do what? To brush aside those impurities. And that's exactly what a silversmith does. He puts that silver in the fire and he watches it and he looks at it and as soon as the impurities are removed, he pulls it out or else it'll be destroyed. And that's exactly what God is doing with us. He is watching us. He is there. He has a purpose, and His purpose is what? To make us more like Christ. We've been predestined for that. It's a, there's no, there's, it's a done deal. We are predestined to be conformed to the image of Christ. And this is how He does it through the struggles of life. There is nothing that happens to you that, is, that has no use. Everything that happens to you is a predetermined plan by God to grow you to be more like Christ. 1 Corinthians 10.31 So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. If you're making a decision, ask yourself, does it glorify God? If you're faced with a decision to make about what, whether you should do this or don't do that or do this or, or whatever, does it glorify God? That's why we exist. That's why you are breathing in this, in this room this morning. It's to bring God glory. And when He is done with you, He will call you home. But in the meantime, we are here to glorify God. And He had to remind that of these Corinthians. They were all focused on themselves. They were fighting and uh, being confused over issues, and he was reminding them, you know why you're here? You're here to glorify God. That's what you should be focused on. Again, chapter 15, verses 3 and 4. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Again, Paul is laying the Gospel. He's putting before us the Gospel from first to last. But then I'll, finally, I want to draw your attention to verse 58 of chapter 15. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. That, that verse sums up all of what Paul's doing all through this book. He's, he's telling them, be steadfast. What does steadfast mean? Hold your, hold your place. You feel like you can't go another step. You feel like you're about to be swept off your feet. He's saying, no, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your, your labor is not in vain. Everything that we do is to the Lord. Our secular jobs, God has given us those jobs in order to proclaim to further His kingdom wherever we may be. I know some of us have jobs we don't like. I've had those before. But we have to remind ourselves that we're there because God has decreed to put us there. And we have a work and everything that we do, if we do it from the mindset of a kingdom, of God's kingdom, it is not a waste of time. And we can, we can, be, we can rejoice and have joy in that. But in the struggles of life, as, as we were talking about, he's saying be steadfast, be immovable, stand there. I am the one who's holding you up. There is no temptation that has overtaken you that is not common to man. I'm faithful. God is there to hold us up. He was there to bolster this struggling church who no doubt maybe seemed like it was about to come unraveled. But God is saying, no, this is my church. And if you go back and you read in Revelation, in the early chapters of Revelation, chapter 1, you see Jesus walking in the midst of His churches, the lampstands that represent the seven churches of Asia, minor. Jesus walking in the midst of them. What does that mean that He's walking in the midst of them? He's the Lord of the church and He's superintending the work of those churches. And they will not fail until He says they will no, they will no longer ex, They will exist until He says they will not exist. And in His hands... We see the imagery. He says he has the messengers of those churches, the leaders of those churches. He holds in his hands. And he is the Lord of the church, and he's building his church. And this was one of them, Corinth. This church in Corinth, this church of God in Corinth, was one of the churches of God that he had created, that Paul had, uh, had planted, that God had created. And he was very, very much interested in what they were going through. And he sent his, he sent his faithful instructor the apostle to help them out in their struggle and so we can take great comfort in knowing that as bad as things might get around here christ is still the head of the church and he's still building it and in fact because of that nothing is that bad is it there is nothing bad around here there is nothing bad in any other church as long as they are being faithful to the gospel he is the head of that church and he is building that church Last thing I want to mention, I'm, wow, I'm way late. One of the things that we see characteristic in this church that was struggling was they were walking in the flesh. They were not necessarily of the flesh. They were believers, but they were walking in the flesh. They were not walking in the spirit. And so Galatians 5 tells us how we can determine whether we're walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit. He says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, and these are the things that we looked at that are going to be going on all through this church in Corinth. Idolatry, sorcery, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. He says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what's the answer? How do we stay out of that? But the fruit, singular, of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You, got, you walk in the Spirit. It is the Spirit who produces the fruit in us. But we can walk in the flesh. And so we have to recognize it when we are and immediately begin to put off whatever it is that, we're, that is fleshy and put on the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit. 
And so may God bless us as we go through this book. We have great, great uh, instruction to glean here as we go through in order that we might be a thriving New Testament church of God here in Rinkin, Georgia. Let's pray. Father, I thank you again for your blessings. Lord, that you, you, we thank you most of all that you are the Lord of the church. You are the head of your church. And Father, we fail you all the time. We lean, our own, we lean on our own wisdom. And God, we just thank you so much that your promise is true that the gates of hell will not prevail against your church, that your church is triumphant. Father, it is, it is gaining and it is growing every day as the Lord of the church wills. And we thank you that we're a part of that. I pray that you'd bless us to be a greater church in this community, that we would seek to proclaim the gospel to those around us. Give us the grace to do that and to love each other in the midst of it, Father. Help us when we struggle. Give us the grace to turn from our sin and to know nothing other than Jesus Christ and Him crucified. In His name we pray. Amen.